0: Come to the explaining history podcast, and today I want to look at something um that is quite complicated and I think quite obscured by a much bigger story and that 's the changing relationship that the British government had with britain's colonies during the Second World War. Now normally, the story is about India and it 's about decolonization and it 's about britain's various attempts to um, hang on to her colonies during the war. But actually there's another story to be told. There's a story of a changing relationship um, that is based on economic necessity. Britain is absolutely desperate to hang on to her colonies because they're enormous sources of manpower and raw materials and they're huge sources of finance. Britain is indebted to Canada at the end of the war as she is to the United States. But also, it's it's less well-known that Britain was also indebted to India and a number of the the non-dominion colonies. Um, The manner in which Britain manages those debts is more than a little underhand. Britain manages those debts from London. So instead of being written down as a debt, it was written down as a sterling balance. That was uh, not so much a uh, a debt from one country to another as uh, a transaction between different parts of the empire. So it doesn't really appear on the balance sheet. It's rather the rather similar to how multinational corporations. Um, write checks to uh, different uh, aspects of themselves these days. Um, However, what it did mean is there was a net flow of uh, material and financial resources from India to Great Britain. Now, food production is the fundamental basis of uh, most dealings between Colonies and the imperial center, uh, Great Britain is obviously very keen to make sure that there is a flow of food resources from the colonies to um, the uh, to to Britain. And there is a view that well the colonies have lots of territory, lots of land, and they should be more than capable of producing food for themselves and surpluses uh, for the British under um, blockade uh, from uh, German U-boats. Um, Kenya is uh, as seen as a, a, an ideal, um, an ideal site. There are lots of uh, white colonist farmers who who lived really the high life in Kenya. Um, as uh, colo- uh, colonial uh, cattle ranchers in essence and, and view their work in um, rearing cattle and let's face it uh, in enjoying a rather uh, more peaceful uh, war um, as really kind of their their contribution to the war effort The reality, however, for black Kenyans is that there were near famine conditions in Kenya during the war. And um, during the 1930s, Kenya had been encouraged to produce a kind of a a surplus, a glut of food, which had driven down agricultural commodity prices, once again providing uh, the empire with uh, cheap foodstuffs, but having serious implications for. Kenyan farmers, particularly smaller and more impoverished ones. But the war managed to put um, various uh, conflicts on hold. Um, the land grab that white colonists had engaged in in Kenya, um, taking over land and throwing the indigenous peoples off it, um, uh, was temporarily suspended in 1937. The Resident Native Labour Ordinance had been passed, which uh, threatened Eviction from uh, traditional um, tribal lands, um, normally in the name of uh, the interests of um, white colonist uh, cattle barons. Uh, It's interesting if you look at some of the um, uh, some of the films produced about Africa after the Second World War in the fifties and sixties, when uh, places like uh, Kenya and Uganda and Tanzania are the um remaining parts of the the British Empire. Things such as Born Free, the story of the the Adamsons, um the when you actually look at the rhetoric of people like Joy Adamson, she's constantly referring to the uh Tanzanian um tribes people who'd inhabited her land, or she'd inhabited theirs really, let's face it. Uh, for time immemorial, um, she constantly referring to them as as squatters, and having them thrown uh, thrown off the land, which she used as a nice nature reserve for uh, leopards and lions and things like that. So it gives you a, a snapshot as into uh, white colonialist attitudes in Kenya during that time period. The thing that makes life uh, an awful lot easier for um, Kenyans and Tanzanians and um, other um, colonised Africans is the fact that there's an enormous uh, enormous demand for labour and that um, once there's a huge demand for labour and wars always bring this about um, the uh, tensions between um, labour and landowners or labour and managers or labour and the government tend to decline because obviously the ordinary workers, the ordinary um, uh, peasants, have got something of uh, an ace hand to play. And the, the war years actually gave um, the uh, poorest Africans something of a reprieve from the, the manner in which they were treated by their uh, colonisers. After 1943, when the prospects for victory start to look up when Italy's been defeated and things are decisively turning against Germany, um, and when it looks really as if the uh, defeat in the Far East at the hands of the Americans will only really be a matter of time for the Japanese. Um, The British Colonial Office um, becomes far more optimistic about the futures of the British Empire the idea that um india would be gone by 1947 really is um something of uh, really isn't particularly on their, on their radar certainly this isn't something that uh, churchill was um considering and so there is a um a wave of uh plans drawn up that have had to have been on hold for much of the war for industrial development across the across Africa and Asian colonies of um, new governmental structures within these colonies um the shock that Britain had in the fall of Malaya and the fall of Singapore and the fall of Burma really the loss of the kind of the, the crescent in uh, Southeast Asia which if you want to read more on you should read Bailey and Harper's most most brilliant brilliant books uh, forgotten armies and forgotten wars um, two absolute gems that um, I know I've recommended to listeners uh, uh, an awful lot. But the shock of of that and the um, uh, the grassroots political changes that took place as a result of Britain's abject failures to defend the colonies and the abandonment of those colonies to the Japanese. Um, it wasn't lost on the Malays that um, uh, and the uh, the Burmese that when um, there was a a great uh, white British retreat. Um, The uh, colonial subjects were left behind to to fend for themselves. Um, This made um, colonial office officials think long and hard about the kinds of societies that they were going to re-inherit from the Japanese once they returned. And the, the answer was, particularly in places like Malaya, that the various sultans and princes had been the first port of call for the uh the british they had, those are the people that they had gone out of their way to have dealings with um much as the same model for running india on the assumption that these um uh princes and uh, sultans um uh would then be the people who would um enforce rule in their own particular areas this um, pre war system of rulership was going to come to an end. You had um, an ethnically diverse um, Malaya that had been uh, hugely brutalized by uh, Japan, this had and um, the departure of the uh, British had led to um, the development of deep ethnic tensions. Um, the Chinese, uh, Malay Chinese, were seen as synonymous with support for the Malay Communist Party. Um, the, uh, there were uh, Indian uh, an Indian uh, immigrant population who were uh, treated really quite badly and the idea that you could return to uh, this old kind of um raj style government where british administrators used a local planipotentiaries uh to uh, potentates um to um rule was um clearly unworkable instead a, a a more modern system of government was going to have to be needed to put the government to put the country Back together. Also, this is how the British perceived things. Uh, the reality, of course, um, was that uh, the country was not going to return to some kind of uh, colonial plantation system that had been established. In fact, uh, the uh, the lives of poor planters who are treated, or poor plantation workers, shall I say, who were treated abominably. Um, and the the rubber plantations of of, of Malaya meant that at at the end of the war there was a large number of people who benefited very little from colonial rule, had no role or no place in um, the uh, colonial system who were often referred to as squatters, who were looked upon by uh, Malays and by the British with immense suspicion that they might be involved with the the communists, and were in the eyes of colonial administrators, particularly back in London, either a threat to the uh, continued colonisation of Malaya or... um, evidence of the uh, disastrous short-sightedness of British rule in Malaya. Um, There were some colonial um, mandarins in Whitehall that thought the best thing to do was to democratise Malaya as quickly as possible and bring these uh, potential um, threats to um, British um, rule uh, into the tent. There were others that believed that um, a a war, uh, which eventually comes, uh, civil war with the communists, was inevitable and desirable, and it was going to be these um, dispossessed uh, squatters, the the, the poor, um, who were uh, clustered around uh, plantation estates, who uh, were going to be the the main source of succor and comfort to the communists. Britain had uh, its own Malay Planning Unit uh, from quite early on in the war, and it viewed itself as the kind of the government in exile. Um, and the idea that Britain would be reunited with Malaya um, was uh, an incontrovertible faith in in their eyes. Um, the uh, there's a very interesting episode uh, which perhaps tells you a lot about. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The, uh, the prospects for Britain in uh, Malaya. When uh, Britain had a, a mass amphibious landing that came just after the dropping of the atomic bomb, so following Japan's surrender, um, they, uh, the British... Um, seized back Malaya, and they had to be seen to be doing it with a show of force, even though the Japanese had kind of already surrendered. The Japanese officers who saw the, the the British landing, and bear in mind that this is uh, long a year after D Day. They said, "Well, it's it's kind of a good thing we'd already surrendered for you for your lot, because where we are, we could have mown you all down." Um, and so the um, British desire to uh, re-establish themselves in in Malaya had to be symbolic and had Britain really had to have fought for Malaya to reconquer it it would have been incalculably expensive and uh, disastrous and not least because there was uh, a large part of the multi-ethnic Malay population that was very reluctant to see Great Britain return. The uh, historian Tim Harper on this subject has said that Malaya's post-war renovation was an attempt to replace the confused loyalties of the pre-war period with a sense of allegiance to the colonial state. So what the British hoped to do in Malaya was to take um, this kind of rather muddled confederation they'd set up, which had always held together in a Heath Robinson way, and create a unified state which was a colony and also a nation-state at the same time. Now, you can always imagine the complexities of of doing that. If you have a nation-state, the people within that nation-state need to identify with it as being sovereign. How do you create a nation-state which is also a colony as well? Inevitably, you will have a desire for at least um, uh, you know a, a profound degree of devolution uh, or, or uh, autonomy, but for the most part, nation states are are born in kind of indes- independent struggles, and there is um, there is no coincidence that Britain's plans um, coincide with this upsurgence of Malay nationalism, and it seems interestingly. As if um, the things like the fall of Singapore and the kind of the mid-war crises in Whitehall see an, an old version of the British Empire slip away, and conceptions of a new one emerge. The there was an idea that kind of in the old days that Britain had been this kind of rather buccaneering country and had grabbed colonies and done rather bad things to the inhabitants of those colonies. And now um, the answer wasn't decolonisation and an end to empire, but it was a new, more responsible, more um, patriarchal and more uh, bureaucratic empire. An empire that was done in a, a more considered way. Um, and the, co- the, the coincidence of this idea with um, a development of um, state planning and bureaucratisation in Britain, you know, the development of a war economy and later a welfare state, are are no uh, coincidences. These are no coincidences. There was a national statism developing in Britain and an imperial statism developing across the empire. Unfortunately for those imperial planners, the empire, particularly in Asia, didn't really have much longer to live. Uh, Attempts to create um, a, a more unified empire... Uh, couldn't have been more fundamentally undermined in uh, India, for example, the decision by the Viceroy to declare war on behalf of the British Empire without even consulting uh, the uh, Congress or any other representative body of the Indian people. Um, The uh, Quit India campaign in mid-1942 and the Bengal famine in 1943 all meant that Britain's hold over India um, was very, very tenuous by the end of the war. The decision to put um, the surviving members of Subhas Chandra Bose's Indian National Army on trial, um, and a podcasted about uh, chandra Bose uh, and about britain at the end uh, the india at the end of the second world war previously so if you want to listen to those they're they're all back there these all created crises of allegiance for uh, indian people and many decided that they Had um, more time for the Indian National Army, who fought alongside the Japanese, uh, than they did for British colonisers. Perhaps it's always a good idea never to set up an ultimatum in an individual for where they are unlikely to choose your side. But that's perhaps by the by. Churchill himself had been a terrible advert for um, imperial unity. He being the most ardent of imperialists um, was uh, extremely unattractive to India, um, and particularly when he had made his uh, overtly racist comments uh, about Indians during the Bengal famine. Um, you can always they're, they're widely circulated, but I won't go into them, them here. Um, uh, perhaps a more sympathetic figure was Stafford Cripps who had been a... who who became, um, at least, Chancellor. He'd been Churchill's uh, ambassador to the Soviet Union during the war. Churchill utterly hated him. Um, And he was later sent to India as the head of the eponymous Crips Mission, which attempted to draw um, Muhammad Ali Jinnah's Muslim League and the Congress into the Viceroy's Executive Council. Um, the Crips mission doesn't offer independence. Um, it postpones consideration of Britain's withdrawal until after the war. And Gandhi rubbishes the Crips mission. He causes a post-dated cheque from a failing bank. And Cripps was unable to uh, present a compelling uh, shape of a future India that either the British, i.e. Churchill, or the Indians... Um, and Gandhi and Nehru uh, were likely to have any interest in at all principally um, if there was to be independence under what terms under um, who uh, you know where would power lie, which princely states would be able to opt out of a new Indian nation or confederation, what would be the fate of um, a a Muslim state or Muslims within uh, a new Indian state. None of this is really fully articulated, and the only hint that um, Cripps does give is one that makes Gandhi 's blood run cold. the idea that possibly um, there could be opt out clauses. Cripps doesn't really quite make that clear, but Gandhi sees the, the the division of India right there. However, the failure of the Crips mission um was really a cosmetic compared to the failure of the British to be able to um, feed Bengal. Um, The breakdown in the distribution of foodstuffs um, so that um, the province um, could uh, eat and survive and the uh, loss of an estimated 3 million lives um, meant that British legitimacy in India ended um, at that point. Uh, Without going into the famine itself, because that's a subject of an entirely different podcast, I think. It's a big, big topic area. But the reasons for the famine are, firstly, that um, Japan's advances into Burma had cut off flows of uh, foodstuffs from Burma to Bengal. Um, The fear that the Japanese might use uh, Bengali boats to um, cross over into India uh, meant that uh, a lot of the uh, transport um, along the uh, river Ganges were destroyed and the priority for Britain was to ensure that foodstuffs were not diverted to um, deal with starving populations uh, away from uh, vital supplies for armies. Um, The imperial centre um, and its needs came before the needs of subject peoples. And the, the the point being, I think, that within the British Empire at least, a fair degree of consent was always needed for people to uh, permit themselves to, to be ruled. Um, there was a reason why Britain was able to rule a large uh, subcontinent like India, and it was that at certain periods of time, there were certain net benefits to certain demographics and political uh, political strata within India. The moment that that's gone, the moment that Britain is a net loss for everybody, then Britain's rule over India also, also uh, evaporates. So as we can see, um, the British uh, administrative classes in Whitehall Um, had an immense influence and impact over the empire during the war. There were periods where they believed that um, a new and rejuvenated, perhaps slightly streamlined British Empire could establish itself after the war. And There were other moments where they saw new conflicts arising, and there were points at which they uh, hoped India, for example, the most important part of the empire, could be retained, and moments where they suspected that, Certainly, was able to happen. The interest one well, another interesting facet of all this are changing American attitudes towards the British Empire. The uh, American uh, forces fighting in Burma and China looked upon the British Empire with a great deal of disdain. They they saw SIAC... Southeast Asia Command was nicknamed Saving England's Asian Colonies. And there was, uh, within the uh, American uh, newspaper and uh, radio media and uh, the broader American population, uh, a great deal of resentment, and understandably so, um, that uh, Americans were fighting and dying to allow the British to uh, retain their, their colonies. However, at the end of the war, as the possibility of communist takeovers in places like... Um, Malaya, Indonesia and Vietnam presented itself, Harry Truman um, successor to Roosevelt was more than happy for the British to return to, in fact they returned to all of these um, places uh, You know, two of the colonies being former French, former Dutch and former French um, to re-establish colonial order um, as the uh, threat of Stalin in Europe uh, occupies much of, of Truman's thoughts and Having Britain as a, a useful regional policeman is really really quite handy obviously uh, Britain is fatally economically undermined um, at, with the end of lend lease and the uh, the the uh, criteria for uh, the cri- the uh, Kenes Uh, loan negotiated in August 1945, which um, causes the currency, the pound, to be fully convertible uh, by 1947. Once that's happened, Britain is effectively bankrupt and cannot afford to police um, her own colonies um, and cannot afford to carry out their own little police actions in places like Greece. Turkey, uh, thus ushering in an entirely new phase of American foreign policy. Anyway, I've gone on for far too long, so I'm going to leave you there. I hope you find this useful, and I'll catch you on the next Explaining History podcast. Bye-bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands.